Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hi, thanks for joining me. Peter Saville is arguably the best-known, most successful and highly acclaimed psychologist within the business psychology profession. With the usage of some 50 million of his measures of ability, personality, motivation and talent annually, Peter has been described as one of the most influential psychologists of our time. He co-founded SHL in 1977, where he developed the Occupational Personality Questionnaire, the OPQ, which was the first big commercial Big Five personality measure. Later on, he floated SHL on the London Stock Exchange. After the successful float of SHL, Peter went on to found Savile Consulting, which is now Savile Assessment, where he developed the Savile Wave Questionnaire, and the company was acquired by Willis Towers Watson in 2015. Perhaps a glutton for punishment, it seems, Peter has since gone on to launch an exciting new venture, 10X Psychology. Not only that, he has a new book out on the way, called Testing Times, Psychologist at Work, and that's going to be published soon. Okay, let's get into it. Hi, Peter. Thanks very much for joining me today. Hi, Ben. Good to, good to meet up with you. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to be diving into all sorts of stuff, but before we begin, uh, I have to say you're responsible for me seeing a large part of my country, Australia. So most people know Australia's pretty huge, and if you live in Sydney, you don't really go to Perth, and if you're in Perth, you don't really go to Sydney, maybe for a holiday once upon a time. But I got sent around doing assessments with SHL, OPQ assessments really? all around the country, so Queensland, Hobart, the West, all sorts of places. So I want to say thank you for letting me uh, tour my own country. Oh, that's good. I, in fact, I'm not just saying this. In the running courses down in Australia, which I did in Melbourne, mainly Sydney, but also uh, I think as well in Brisbane, mm. um, were some of the most enjoyable courses. They were really good fun. You know, the, the people on the courses were good fun. So you're being paid you know, to train them in the OPQ. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember doing, I can't remember which one it was, but yeah, if, however many days it was, we had a great time. We learned a lot, yeah. but we had a lot of luck. Um, we're going to talk about the book later as well, but I know in the book there's some great stories of, of you giving talks and, and doing some training sessions. I think it was Trinidad and then also in the Netherlands somewhere. So some feisty stuff going on. Um, yeah. But for people who may not know the full story, maybe we could take it back and look at uh, Savile Holdsworth. So can you tell us uh, the, the backstory to that? So starting with Roger Holdsworth and then the way you developed the product lines and the services, <clears throat> other bits and pieces. What happened, I should make clear, was that I had been, I joined the National Foundation for Educational Research Test Division, right, which had a monopoly of all tests and not you know, at the time, virtually complete monopoly. Um, and I got promoted, fortunately promoted through to chief psychologist at the test division. So I was covering educational, clinical and occupational testing. But I learned my trade there for seven years. Uh, but I was increasingly being asked to run courses on selection testing by organisations like BP, Mars, um, Whitbread, and so on. And that was allowed in my contract. So if I took holiday, I, I actually earned the fee. And it was in the in the NFR's time, I had half the fee. So that was going on and on and on, on more and more. <clears throat> and there were five-day courses in 
and then five day courses in a in a personality measurement. And this this income was building up and up and up and up. And then um, a management consultancy in High Wycombe called HGS Management Consultants offered me uh, the opportunity of forming a company where they would fund it, but they have 51%. Or I could go out on my own because I'd already built up a sales platform. So actually, it was accidental. I went to Roger for advice, like in a <laughs> career's advice, and say, well, I've had this offer from HGS. Um, uh, Dr. Bill Barry was HR director, I think, of um, British Airways on one stage. Um, now, now, unfortunately, passed away. And, um, and then, or I could go out on my own. And then he, he, he made a counter offer and said, well, perhaps we should form a company together, but really just in test publishing. So you have all of your t- training and a consultancy work you're doing. Um, and um, that's why he offered 65% shares in my favor. And I went away and I was still doing work and um, running courses. And I did a big validation study on pub managers, uh, looking at you know, the qualities of people that tend to succeed versus fail. Um, and it wasn't until um, much later that year that I decided in about the September of 1977 that I would go with Roger rather than be on my own or go with HTS Management Consultants. Big decision. It was a big decision. And it took me quite a few months Went away on holiday to Bournemouth, glorious um, summer that year, um, and um, thought over it. And Roger was so good on account structure, um, knew about company formations and uh, registering for, you know, taxations, VAT and all that sort of thing, which is not my scene. Um, I decided that I would um, join up with him. Uh, and initially, all the training work of the agreement would have come in that I did came into me. All the consultancy I did would come into me because Roger mainly did individual assessments. You know, he assessed people, then write up the reports. But after a year, um, the company had flown, you know, done so well. He came along and said, well, can we go, can I buy, you know, go 50-50? So I I sold him 15% of the shares for £15. (laughs) (laughs) Which stupid thing I ever did because of the accountants that they were You've made such a profit in your first year. Wow. They're worth an awful lot more. Wow. How much did they buy Alaska for? Was that $1? It was £15. It was pounds a share. So No, yeah. I just think it's, a, yeah. But anyway, that's it, um, it didn't yeah, matter. It doesn't matter. No. The, the company may not have gone as well because we were not socially close because he, he, he was part of the Armitage family, Armitage Shanks. Yeah. His father was a, a high court judge. And he was Marlborough to Cambridge, and I, I was I was brought up in the rough end of um, of Wembley in in in, in Northwest London, so we're very different social background. But yin I think yang. quite a good team, effectively. So I got more involved in the product development, um, more more involved in training because I enjoyed that. He less so, but he was very good at the structure. But he's a good psychologist as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and strangely, a bit more in, the, in, in terms of the academic uh, work and the test development. So really together, um, you know, it, was, it, it, it worked well, effectively. That's great. That's great. And how did you get the balance between developing products or actual assessments versus consulting work? And then how did that shift over time? 
Well, when I was away um, running courses, perhaps I might be away for a week, leave on a Sunday. You start on a Sunday evening. Many evenings I was working on test construction, having run the course during the day. I was writing items and so on. Then, um, then if I had a week spare between two courses, we were writing items and tests. Um, someone from the NFER joined me, um, one of the psychologists there to help in that development. Um, and um, I decided to actually look at three main areas. So that was graduate management selection yeah. um, at, if you like, clerical staff and office space selection and have a battery for that. And um, thirdly, a very big area at the time was apprentice selection. You know, mechanical the, comprehension. The, yeah, that's right, mechanical comprehension. And they were using American tests and they tested 150,000 applicants a year. Ooh. So I went down to Croydon to see um, David Matthews and um, he agreed to come over to our new test immediately. So we were selling 150,000 answer sheets, pens and paper then, immediately to him, you know, overnight. Wow. Then I saw the construction industry training board and they came over because, again, they were using American tests. And um, we also, um, of course, I decided that we had a bit of an argument over this with Roger and myself. I wanted to publish in colour to make them look different. Yeah, I wanted to ask about this. And I think you got your brother involved, right? My brother was director of design in the stationery office, which I think is the biggest publisher in the country because they published Hansard. Ah, so parliamentary job. book, yeah. You know, I mean, so um, he was director of design and um, he came up with our first test battery design, which is that. Oh, wow. And we had, uh, this is all pencil and paper. It's uh, Someone found this in a skip, by the way, <laughs> with booklets and answer sheets. And I did it all in colour, um, administration cards for the administrator. I, I used acetate keys, not horrible paper keys. Mm. And then a manual with the, with the norm line we send out every, every so often. And many, um, I remember the HR director of Mars Confectionery saying, Peter, using this stuff we've got now, which looks like it's come from the 1800s, you know, is a poor advertisement for our company. Yeah. So, you know, we don't care what you charge for the materials if it looks relevant, because in fact, that it may, gives us an advantage in the competition between good graduate selection and good, for to get good graduates. So there was an increased production cost to come up with the, the better branding. Well, and quite minor doing it in colour. I mean, very often it's just one colour. Yeah. Um, made it more difficult to photocopy as well. So oh, yeah. But although most people did not do that because they didn't really. We could then withdraw their licence, we found out. So photocopying wasn't a great problem. Yeah. But um, I don't think people realised at the time that the materials that companies use is a reflection of that company. Mm. Just like if I went to a bad interview as a, as a graduate looking for a job, I remember once the guy fell asleep on me because he had a bottle of wine at lunchtime. Well, I, I wasn't that, I was arrogant enough to think, well, if that's the way you go about your interviewing, yeah, yeah I don't particularly want to work for you effectively. So, um, yeah. so, it, 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 so the, the idea that it was all in colour, um, and also, frankly, the quality of the training, we, put, we took people right through um, norms, correlation, reliability, validity, right through to utility analysis for five days, um, meant they often got through their what, was, what would now be their CIPD exams. 
you know, because they, the, the stats was taught in a, in, a, in a way which was different. Um, and um, that was very useful in that general qualification. Can I ask about the actual marketing of the business? Because if I'm correct in thinking, there were some concerns that you guys were I don't know, being a bit salesy in an area that was supposed to be clean, cut, well, pure data yeah. only. When I was on the test standards committee of the BPS at the time, um, um, the National Institute of Industrial Psychology had been existed since the 1920s, but they got massively out of date, effectively. So when we produced a catalogue, a brochure, saying that we did this sort of work, like assessments and testing and courses, um, I remember the then director of the NIP, as it went broke, said, you know, we're not in trade, you know. Uh, and um, um, so it did cause some concern amongst the older generation, but not amongst the younger generation of psychologists. Right. And how did you get in with the big companies? Mainly by recommendation. I mean, um, I remember, <clears throat> for example, one of our clients was BP. The HR director was reading the Times on his way into the city. And opposite were two people from another company, a very big insurance company indeed, who were talking about the problem of finding managers around the country who were the best because they yeah. knew that the appraisal system wasn't perfect. So um, Peter Dodgson put his Times down and said, excuse me, I know, I know a company, a guy that's helped us in this area with assessment centres, um, why don't you come for lunch at Britannic House in London and meet him? And I did. They then got me to meet the chairman of the company and he immediately ordered about 20 assessment, five-day assessment centres. So a lot of it was through recommendation. Brilliant. It was really recommendation, especially from the courses. Yeah. And of course, it also meant from the courses that when we went out with new tests, they trialled them for us. So, and if you get involved in trialing, you normally use that, use those materials. Yeah. And they gave us feedback on what we should and shouldn't do and what they should look like. And being on the courses, I enjoyed running them, but I was getting a lot of information from my own clients about what they will be, about they need to be short, you know, job relevant, et cetera. So I was getting marketing information when I was running the courses, which they were paying me for. Yeah. There's a lesson in that for everyone um, listening to this, I think, isn't networking, it? But I, it wasn't deliberate networking. Yeah, uh, They became personal friends. And when I did re uh, resign from the NFER, the phone didn't stop ringing, you know, with people offering jobs you know, for projects to, to be done yeah. um, because they wanted to keep us alive as a company because the, the, the only other alternatives were, um, well, they weren't there. Um, so... Um, it That's was brilliant. from really those those courses starting in 1974. Those NFER, you were getting better and better known. And um, when I did go out on my own for those few months, I wasn't with Roger until we formed SHL. You know, I was getting lots of courses and project work to do effectively. Yeah, right. And then it became an overnight success after all those years of plugging away. Profit. It just flew. It yeah, just flew. brilliant. And, Actually. Uh, we, we funded the test development through, our, through the actual um, training course income. I was just going to ask about the funding and development of the OP, OPQ itself, the Occupational Personality Questionnaire, because that was quite an innovative way to come up with a new product line. I remember Bain & Co coming over. Bain & Co, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, we went over to the Albert pub just for a pint. And he, he said, um, I said, what we've done, we've gone out and we've asked people to sponsor the development for so many thousand pounds a year. And in return, they'll get a free training in the instrument and won't have to pay any license fee. Um, but they've also done all the trialing for us. Um, and he said, who thought that one up? <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, um, we, the OPQ um, was done at no cost to us, the development. Genius. We took, yeah. took four years. Um, yeah. And we had re regular meetings in London with about 100 people there explaining where we had got to. Um, they did the trialing. We went through about three or four trialing stages. And then, then we produced it. And, of course, they immediately became clients. Brilliant. So we switched from the 16PS over to the APK. Would you recommend that as a method to uh, the companies that are looking to develop new service lines or products? I don't think get away with it now. No? Because <laughs> I, I hear it called as pre-selling. I hear it called pre-selling where you're getting people in. As, as In the tech world, they call it beta testers, right? And special rates and all that kind of thing. Perhaps so. I mean, I, I'm not really into sales that much. Um, it, it, it was just um, a client suggesting that if you had a licensing fee, they could go to their finance director and actually say, if we get in now, you know, basically we won't have to pay this fee for five years. Then what happened was um, when, as soon as, um, let's say, let's say Sainsbury's came in, yeah, then immediately Tesco came in. So I expected yeah. to get 10 clients sponsoring us and we ended up with over 50. That's that FOMO, fear of missing out thing, is it? Yeah, it probably was. Yeah, yeah. it probably, probably worked to our advantage. Brilliant. So you had the, uh, the assessments, you had consulting work, training. I found it interesting that you decided to go the next step beyond that, which was Woodstock House, which is the SHL Management Centre. Can you tell us why you did that? Cool that. And we, the problem was we were training sometimes 16 people, 10 courses a week. Wow. So I remember Charles Handy, I was talking in Ireland, coming yep. up to me and said, you've got it right, haven't you? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I go out and give a talk and I charge for it, but you've got about 30 people around the world running your same course. So he said, and he said, I, I'm supposed to be the management guru. <laughs> He's a good guy. But um, no, we, we got to a situation that we, we, we were using up all the rooms of the local hotels and there was nowhere. We, we, we didn't have enough room locally to actually um, to, to house them. So this offer came up to uh, acquire the Boilermakers Unis Training Centre, which had been left deserted for a year. It was a and it was in a terrible state. So boilermakers, did you say? The boilermakers union. Brilliant. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I um, negotiated with them that we would rent it, but any improvements we would make, they would pay for it half of it with us plus RPI. Right. So I, I said, right, I want to add tennis courts, two tennis courts, probably. I want to add um, a little um, golf course around it. We want to do some extra buildings. And they were so desperate to get to agree to it, to get it off their hands. They, um, they agreed to all these um, additions. So realize that when you run a management course, um, it's not just a good co course content. I was pretty fed up with people complaining about the bad food or people not understanding courses. Yeah. So we also did not actually take people from outside to actually do the catering. 
we took on our own chefs to do it. But people pre-ordered, so we had virtually no wastage. So basically, we give a very high-quality food, which everybody raved about. I think they came back for the food more than the actual course. <laughs> um, so that was so. Having run courses so much in in, in hotels, we knew I knew exactly. I felt what I wanted in that place, and that was one of my joys. Actually, was um, overseeing the development of that of it. Yeah. Then I was actually in Australia, oh, yeah. and I got a phone call at three o'clock in the morning, and Roger Holdsworth was on the line saying. Uh, we've had a phone call saying that the union now owe, owe us more than we owe them. <laughs> Will we buy it from them? Ah. And I, I said, what are they asking? He said, five million pounds. I said, a million. They signed for a million. So we acquired 10 acres of prime Surrey site for one million pounds. And we oh. had our own management center. That meant people could visit us and gave us more status. Absolutely. Because, you know, we had a lovely restaurant, very good food. They can come down and see that. We have meetings there, which save time, as well as all the course delegates. You could also go up there at lunchtime and walk around and say hello to your delegates, which yeah. are all your customs. Yeah. If you wasn't, and I, I, I enjoy courses so much, I was running them when I was still chairman of the company. Really? Yeah, and I'd often go up there on a Sunday night and have a pint or something with a, with them, a few friends and meet the delegates there that, that, that have seen it. And another important point, many of our, of our clients were women. And the hotels, you know, if they're in the room on their own, oh, they yeah. can't go in the bar, yeah? You know, it makes it difficult for them. Yeah, yeah. Because our centre, they, they felt easy to come yeah. without being harassed by anybody. yeah. That was, I think, another important Which strengthens the learning. If it's an internal corporate event, then you're only strengthening networks within that business. And if it's um, yeah, a multi-company uh, event, there's going to be networking going on, isn't there? You deliberately made the courses quite difficult yeah? and had a test at the end of it uh, with a certificate. So it was quite tough. Um, but we, we actually coached them through the course. Yeah? It was open book. So by setting it at about the 75th percentile, if you like, they felt they'd actually really achieved something. That's good. So they left there. Um, and it meant that later on, when other companies would come in and try and sell tests to our delegates, they knew more than the salespeople. Yeah. And in fact, I heard that after I left SHL, one salesperson had gone in and said, um, I'm with SHL. And the guy said, well, Peter Saff will train me. And they were the salesperson from SHL. And she, she said, who's Peter Saff? Oh, wow. So unfortunately, she was shown the door. <laughs> well, you can only blame the induction or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not good. Um, and on that, on the management centre, I just love the fact that you're negotiating with unions because, you know, pardon my friend, I, I got, I got I, screwed I, over I, many times by unions in my time. So Then I'd add something else. Yeah, yeah. We're about to sign, then I'd add something else. Then, then I'd add something else. Well, now I want a gym. We'd add <laughs> something else. Um, and... Um, it was great fun negotiating with the union the other way around. I went on a, a harbour cruise once with a shop assistance union Christmas party and they were throwing the money around and their, their, their poor shop, student, shop assistants were being paid pittances, but the, yeah, the union had a great time. Um, can I move to the tricky area of acquisitions and exit strategies? Because if you're listening to this, make sure you get uh, Peter's book because 
because there's some amazing stuff that goes on. But there, there are a few things. One is the, the purchase of Landy and Jacobs in the USA. So uh, an assessment company. I'm curious as to why you, you bought that. And then also the eventual float, uh, flotation of SHL. Can you give us some background to some of that stuff? Yeah, well, Frank Landy was president of SIOP, of course. Um, he, he had um, um, a great intellect and he later, and so and, and, and so did Rick Jacobs for that matter. In fact, Rick has been in contact with, with me recently. Um, um, but Frank then went into litigation psychology work where he charged a great deal of money to work as an expert witness on the mm. fairness of election procedures. Oh, right. I think he looked at the problem of um, one of the bigger pizza places, which paid their delivery guys in the speed they got there, you know, to the destination. But they oh, wow. were... They were knocking people over and killing them. Wow. And he argued that that was not a good way of, you know, of paying their delivery drivers. This is a massive case. So he's involved in a number of class actions. So he was based in New York. I was bringing him out to Barbados because he said he was good at baseball and he said he'd be good at cricket. So I, I found a, a local guy who bowled about 90 mile an hour with a cricket ball um, coming off a building site and he wouldn't have any pads on or, or, or oh. any protective heading and wouldn't have realised that the ball and cricket, you know, hits hard. It'll break something. It, it would have killed him. I could, have done, I could not have done that to him. But unfortunately, he became ill and he, um, his, his partner then was a New Zealander and that was back when they had the World Cup finals in about 2004 oh, yeah. in, in Bridgetown, in Barbados. So, um, but, you know, I'm sure he was good at hitting a, a, a you know, a baseball, but in cricket, um, when it's hitting and coming up into your face and, and everything else. And, and and when I did a talk in New York to the Metro group and I showed them, a, threw a cricket ball at them, they couldn't believe how hard it was. <laughs> it's a lethal weapon, is it not? Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. I've had some people accuse me of saying that it's a lethal weapon also in the sense that it can bore them to death, but I play cricket, I love it, so I don't talk to those but people it, anymore. My, 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 one of the people in Barbados said to me, she said, my, one of my maids, she said, the, the game of glorious uncertainty. It's <laughs> so true. It could be so boring. Then all of a sudden, yeah. people are knocking sixes all over the place and it completely changes. Yeah. So I like to have it on the test match yeah, and just have it on in the background. Then all of a sudden, someone like Ben Stokes comes in, sorry, yeah. but knocking <laughs> people all over the place. Or as you discussed, the both of them ashes. Yeah. Came in, we, we don't need to go there, Peter. We don't need to go there. <laughs> okay. I did see uh, Ian Botham smash us around in Perth once upon a time as well. So he get he got around. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what, stop the course to watch that because that was just incredible. I love it. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so what about the, the trickier side of the, the flotation? Because many businesses think, oh, wow, we're going to sell to a big competitor one day or we're going to float. And it's not, not all very clean and skittles. Flight. Roger was very keen on floating the company because uh, I was not, frankly. I was very happy as it was. It was making very good profits. Exit strategy wasn't even thinking. It wasn't apparent to me. Um, but the decision was made that a lot of the long-term, very good people should make a return for the work they put into the company, not just Roger and myself. So we, we, shut, we sold half our shares for eight pence each, which then floated at about two pound forty. Wow! So um, we gave away effectively half our shares uh, in about nineteen ninety two in a restructure, um, and 
But Roger was very keen to get on the stock exchange. And I didn't realise what that meant. That meant the accountants came in, the lawyers came in, the bureaucracy came in. Um, to, to float a, com a company costs millions. They look at every single detail. Yeah. Um, and then when you are a PLC, the amount of bureaucracy is incredible. And it's just not me. Yeah. So before, you, before you yeah. go on to that, because you mentioned in your book uh, about a book called uh, A Man's Search for Meaning. And it's funny because about two weeks ago, I finished reading it, a, a, an amazing book by Viktor Frankl. I don't know if it's 50 okay. years old now. Wonderful book. But uh, in your book, can I read something to you and get your thoughts on it? So, Yeah, please do. Brilliant. One of our directors, Dr. Sue Henley, a chartered clinical psychologist, firmly believed that floating SHL was another bereavement for me. My work had changed as we ran up to the flotation of SHL from technical and entrepreneurial to an administrative role as a PLC chairman for which I was manifestly, manifestly not suited. I had helped develop the OPQ, many of SHL's ability tests and major courses, now surrounded by bumbling bureaucrats sitting on silly committees. I felt of no worth and almost certainly suffered from a night from identity loss. That, that's a, that's a huge thing. So I, I was reading man's search for meaning recently and, and identity loss from a business. Can you tell me about that? Well, yeah, I mean, because um, I've had an, an aversion to forms and someone said, well, you made your fortune out of forms. <laughs> <laughs> um, 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 Ken Alexander, if you know, is an Australian that ran our Australian outfit. Yeah. Said, well, your book is written the way you ran SHL, feisty, <laughs> and actually completely intolerant of any bureaucracy. Of going in, will you stop having meetings, you know, for about five hours, 20 of you? Yeah. Just yeah. get on with it. Yeah? yeah. Get a smaller group together. Let's discuss it, you know, what we might do. Um, because, you know, meetings were set up about meetings. It was going on and on and on and on. Um, so, but you have to go through all this procedure when you float a company, you have to, as a PLC, of course, you're responsible to all the shareholders. You're always concerned about your interims every three months, which sometimes means long-term planning. Mm. Like if you want to do a validation study, which is quite expensive, but it's longitudinal because you had an academic interest, but it yeah. also improves the product. They're showing that you've got good validity across time. You've got to explain all that. They're the most obvious things. And I, I was finding that for good intentioned people coming on as um, non-executive directors, I met Nigel McGinley, who was the, the CEO of the Tyrac here recently. And he agreed to come in four times a year, four days a year, and make decisions about strategy of a company, which is so niche. Four days a year. It's, it's not. It's not possible. It's not possible. So, I I found that decisions were being made at so-called strategy level when there was no experience of working on the shop floor. Um, so they even decided to print in black and white. Oh wow! You know, and just to save a few pence, when we were we were, we were basically you know, got so much profit margin in there, it made our tests no different to anybody else's. Just cut courses down from five days to just one or two, or even suggested with no training at all. Well, that was the barrier to entry, yeah. effectively. And um, 
our clients felt so well trained but that, that um, they wouldn't go anywhere else. So I, I just fundamentally disagreed. Uh, there was an EGM. Um, they wanted to get rid of Roger, um, uh, particularly because they felt he was interfering. Um, but I would not vote against my partner. Um, and we just lost that EGM. And, um, but they came back to my house two or three times to ask me to go back, effectively. But I said, no, if you wouldn't listen to me before, why should you listen now? And I was particularly concerned about cheating on the internet. Yeah, of course, yeah. That was a major concern of mine that, you know, people, you didn't know who was actually completing the test when we went on. Actually, to be floating at the time of going onto the internet was not a good time. You know, because only it was in its infancy then. Yeah. So that was a, a very stressful period, I imagine. Um, it was. How did you deal with that? And then is that what led you into the formation of Savile Consulting, which is now Savile Assessment? They asked me back uh, and came to my house and made various nice offers. Um, but I could, couldn't work for other people for so long. But I, I thought, no, I'd rather start again. And quite a lot of people that uh, were at Savile SHL rejoined me. Um, so I started that company, developed the Wave Questionnaire. Yes. Uh, and then after 10 years, Towers Watson came along with an offer I couldn't refuse. All the directors uh, were also had, were shareholders, also wanted to take it. So I sold that company um, and moved on again. How long? In, what was that time period from That's starting to, to leaving? T- um, I think we formed um, Savile Consulting, now Savile Assessment, in 2004. And, to, and we... Uh, we sold it about 2016 to, to, to Towers Watson. It's now Willis Towers Watson. Yes. Yeah. They're a very good company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chairman, great guy to talk to. He's a, he's a mathematician. Oh, so, um, so you go they, on they, like house on fire then? We, yeah, we, we, we were talking about the Enigma code and he was very <laughs> knowledgeable now. Um, but he didn't know about Watson, the, the, the post office engineer. Who told them to leave all the valves in with the first computer? Colossus. Really? Why? Yeah, the yeah, the the the, 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 the Colossus um, computer, the Great Enigma code, kept breaking down. I think his name was Tommy Flowers, who was a post office engineer. He said, "No," he said, "You keep turning on and off. You've got all these valves. One breaking down, you know, will actually mean the machine doesn't work. Leave them on." Well, with a filament in a bowl, the old-fashioned bowl. Oh, okay. <clears throat> It, it stresses it. Yes. And by that, it got f- about five times or, or more of life yeah. out of it. Yeah, yeah. And um, the chairman of Towers Watson, he, he saw it immediately. He said, of course. Um, so, um, you know, that, that first early pro- um, you know, computer, I, I think the second one they were making literally as they landing on D-Day. No pressure there. They had, a, they had a, a flood in the room, so they, they were standing with all this electricity in, in the Wellington boots, you know, putting it <laughs> together because they couldn't find a plumber. <laughs> this is not the high-level data science that we... we, we uh, no, no. To see. No, no, quite incredible story. I love it. Um, so are you a glutton for punishment? Because after several consulting now several assessment after shl you've come back for more with 10x psychology what is 10x psychology 
Well, I met Ollie Anderson, who's a mathematician, uh, and then also a master's in um, biometrics, and unusually a master's in HR, who had this idea of a dashboard yeah. um, where we could hold aptitude tests, personality, motivation, well-being, engagement, um, 360 structured interviews all on one central dashboard rather than separate places mm-hmm. and use machine learning and predictive analytics. So I, I produced another questionnaire and I made some tweaks to it, which I learned from the OPQ and WAVE, yeah? mm-hmm. made it quicker. And actually the evidence is, we've just produced a manual, that it's actually got validity, which is higher than WAVE and the OPQ. Wow. And it's online data, uh, it's on all an online platform. But the beauty for HR is you've got all this information in one central place. Nice. So nice. It's on, on the individuals rather than all be in different places. And also what we're doing, we've got embedded validation. It's always worried me that people get a report on the APQ on WAVE, yeah? yeah, but two people will interpret it in different ways. Yes. If someone's highly assertive, someone say, oh, they shows he's got drive or she's got drive. Or it might be, oh, he's bossy. Yeah. So because you've got that, so that 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 questionnaire, you might find two different psychologists or HR people interpreting different ways. So what we're doing is embedding validation yeah? mm-hmm. and actually finding, in fact, which one of characteristics do predict in different jobs. And what we're finding is, of course, that in different jobs, personality characteristics t- tend to predict given competencies very well. To expect one questionnaire to predict across all jobs, other than perhaps conscientiousness, is unlikely. But, you know, things like creativity may be important in media, but less important than an air traffic controller. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. There was a, a moment in the book where you had, I think you'd given a talk or a training session, and a senior manager was, I don't know, furious with you almost, was quite antagonistic, and she was arguing against the process. And so you, I think, sat with her and took her through her own assessment results. I forget if it was the OPQ or something, but it, it changed her thinking almost at once in that one session. It, that's the power of these sort of assessments. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I mean, as a structure, in, in, indeed, in, in counselling or developing people, um, much more use of that is made um, now than used to be. Um, and I've also made the point in, 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 that, in the book you were talking about that very often people are, are tested, you've got all that information on them, it's filed away and not used. Mm. So what we're also doing is we're putting learning and development I- interventions onto that platform mm. so that they can access themselves, yeah? areas which are important to their job where they may wish to improve or learn more. That's very clever. Right, so we, we, so this is all Ollie Anderson's idea. I just write the write the songs, so to yeah. speak. I think it's the way of the future, using that data, and not just data, but live data. I know there's absolutely um, a previous guest on the, the podcast uh, score where they take sales data from you know retail stores across the country, pull it in, uh, and connect it to the HR systems, and say, well, they not selling enough of this product so maybe we need some sales training on this you know live data and it's a completely different area but i love the fact that it's take it online uh, and really 
creating a learning development plan out of that. And it sounds like what you, you're building there with 10X Psychology. That's what we've done. That's what yeah, we do. That's brilliant. Um, what's your advice to other businesses in the broad human resources industry on how to grow a successful HR-related business? Because you've done it several times. So what's your advice to them? A successful HR-related business? Yeah, whether that's a psychology, occupational psychology business or a recruitment firm. Do you have any general advice on how they can take their business and, and turn it into real success as you've done? I think one thing I'd say is work hard. Um, um, we talk about work-life balance, which is absolutely right that we should. But I mean, basically, um, early in my career, I was putting in over 100 hours a week to get those companies up and going. That, that shone through in the book, I must say. And with Roger as well, he was... Uh... Hard worker, yeah, definitely. I think if I recall, you were either seriously injured or ill and traveling around the world and still had to give a presentation to your biggest client. Um, but yeah, the show must go on as Freddie says. So, Yeah. I think I got a, I got food poisoning in, in from prawns in Thailand or something like that. The journey back was an absolute nightmare. I remember, but I, I still had to get, you know, back with the, all of that jet lag and um, the next day and get up and see one of the major clients in London. Wow. So how do you marry the, the balance between um, that need for hard work and putting the hours in the time and then getting the, the mental space, the mindset that is being discussed a lot more these days? Well, for me, it was always sport. Basically, it was, it was tennis. I enjoyed rugby um, and soccer mainly. Uh, I played a lot of squash uh, as well. Um, as my sons do as well. Yeah. So um, uh, that was a great way of actually um, burning off the tension for me. Um, it was getting out there on a soccer field with your friends who bring you back down to reality uh, effectively. Yeah. Um, I, I don't play now. I'm, I miss it enormously, um, especially being a member of a team, um, defending for 89 minutes and getting a breakaway goal to win one nil. I love that. Great feeling. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, that, that was my way of, um, of um, because it was always said, on a, it went, went around at the NFER on a Tuesday night, I would not do anything because I was football training and that was yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, when I first met Roger, he asked me to give a talk on the 16PS standardisation in London. Um, I gave my talk for an hour and a half and was questioned. Then I, I picked my bag up and was running for the, the actual exit door. And he pulled me back and said, no, you're on the question and answer panel at three. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I got, I got a kick I'm on off. the pitch. <laughs> I'm on the pitch at three o'clock in Wimbledon. <laughs> you answer them. Yeah. You answer them. I was off. <laughs> I love it. All right. So having an outlet is just hugely important. So it's a combination of putting the hours, the time, putting the hard work, whatever it takes almost but having an outlet, whatever format that is, whether it's walks, whether it's listening to music, sport in, in your case. And I, I don't know it's about thinking in outside the box, but sometimes thinking within the box. Sometimes mm. you're combining two, three, four things, you know, together. I don't know if I was that original, but the idea of actually having, well, let's make the, the test less clinical and not have silly questions in it. Like, you know, would you rather be cripping or... or yeah, most of them, uh, there's something wrong with our bowel movements and so on. So items like that questionnaire, it's literally in the MMPI being used. Yeah. They wonder why they got sued. Um, uh, but, you know, having relevant tests, making them short, making them attractive, doing the training well, um, and, and 
doing the consultancy to look at the, comp the competencies required for the job well, um, you know, that, that, that combined formed a form of triangle, which, which, which we then expanded overseas, of course. Yeah. So how far and wide did SHL go? Because you covered so much territory. I, 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 it's been said that um, 50 million of my tests are used a year. 50 million. A year on people for development and selection. Um, and it's been used in some 160 countries like that, the OPQ. Well, like I said, I saw my country thanks to you, so uh, thank you again. Um, tell, tell us about your book, Testing Times, Psychologist at Work. What, why did you write it and when and where can, can people buy it? Well, I've got 11-year-old twins. Um, the boy Jack is mad on squash. You know, he looks like he will do quite well at that. Like his um, half-brother, William, who won the Surrey, um, uh, the, the Surrey final a couple of years ago. Um, and I was very keen on it. And Jack at 11 is um, being brought into the county squad. Um, so I thought that um, when I went to Roger Holdsworth's funeral, his son, Chris, who I knew from a young age, yeah, and such a great guy, actually said, my father was abroad so much. I wish he'd made notes about where he'd been and written a book called I Remember. So I thought, well, you know, in that case, let me try and get down what I did here, at least for them. Um, so that was one of the main reasons. Because mm. there's some beautiful personal anecdotes and situations, just even funny stuff that isn't from the, the bright lights of the, the, the psychology world, but it just means something. It adds all that colour, so I really enjoy it. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, I, I try to keep it funny with some of the anecdotes, but they, they were all true. And, and for someone who's not from London, I, I did like all the little, <laughs> the meetings held in pubs where the, where the Rolling Stones guitarist was hanging out, or the drummer, or whoever oh, it was. This, this was um, and Jimmy Page was at my school two years above me, <laughs> but the woodwork master said he wouldn't get anywhere and took his guitar <laughs> away. Um, Clapton is from Ripley, which is only about five miles away, and Jeff Beck is from Sutton. Wow. So, and they used to meet up in Kingston upon Thames. Yeah. And a friend of mine, Terry Richards, I played football with, played and knew them all well. Oh. And would go along and actually go out to parties with them and so on before they were known. In fact, where I live, literally 100 yards down the hill, is one where one of the Beatles lived. Uh, okay. And, um, and um, so, so the Beatles came to live around this part of Surrey, including St. George's Hill was where um, John Lennon lived for a while. So uh, around here, you, you had Clapton, Jimmy Page, and Jeff Beck. And I'm the only person in the world who has answered a door with a man saying, I want to pick up my son. I said, certainly, he's here. I'll go and get him. And didn't recognise it was Dave Gilmore, or Pink Floyd, who I absolutely adore. Because a friend was there. He said, do you know who that was? I said, no. <laughs> Dave Gilmore. Oh my! Oh my God! Ah, so it, it's guilt that you named a chapter in your book after one of their songs. Is that right? Well, uh, yeah. Uncomfortably <laughs> numb. Uncomfortably numb. Great song. I'm going to have to put it on after and it's, this. It's more than that. There's one called "Wish You Were Here." Ah, 
which is probably song. my favourite song. Yeah, yeah. Beautifully simple, but beautiful song. Oh, what an opening, yeah. yeah. Uh, we've covered so much ground and you've shared a brilliant story. When can people find your book and where, where would they go to yeah. learn about the book and about 10X Psychology? It'll be coming out the 10th of January. And that's when um, 10X Psychology will be making more of its um, services and products available as well. Very cool. All right. So I'll share the links on the show notes. But Peter, thank you very much. And it's such an amazing story you've got. And there's still so much more to come. So thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.